in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. And so again, uh, Paul reminds us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And he says, listen, we got to be ready. we got to be prepared uh, for this war that we are engaging in day in and day out. And we do so by dressing for success, which is what I'm kind of titling this, uh, these messages through the armor of God. And the way that we dress for success is by putting on these various pieces of armors. I love the way the Apostle Paul uses pictures and metaphors in order to teach us spiritual truth. Of course, he learned that from Jesus, right? Jesus often did that in his teachings. And so Paul uses things like athletics and agriculture and architecture. And certainly here he is using that of warfare because Paul was spending a couple of years in Rome under house arrest as he's awaiting his trial before Caesar, and as a result of that time in incarceration, he began writing letters. And so he wrote Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, which later became known as our prison epistles. And so he he's teaching us out you know out of his own experience as he's spending that time and incarcerated in under house arrest in Rome. And of course, there was a Roman soldier who would be overseeing him and making sure that he doesn't escape. So therefore, Paul looks at this Roman soldier and says, you know what, there's a spiritual analogy here that I can utilize in helping people understand what does it mean to engage in spiritual war? How do we stand firm by putting these pieces of the armor upon us and utilize them? Because remember, this is a spiritual war and therefore, physical weapons will not work in a spiritual war. Spiritual war requires spiritual weapons. And so what the analogy that he gives us here, although it's a physical analogy, he's saying, now, let's take these pieces of the armor in the physical and let's apply them to the spiritual war that you and I are engaged in. And so while writing to the church at Ephesus, uh, these believers had heard the gospel. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people who are of faith. They have put their faith in the righteousness of Jesus. They believed in him. And as a result, Paul says he's kind of enlisted them in Christ's army. And he's giving them the, the um, resources that are required for success in spiritual warfare. You and I, in our day and time, we also have been enlisted in the army of Christ, right? So God has called us to be on the front line, and we are engaging in this war. Certainly, we're engaging in the war for the souls of the, of, of the unbelieving. We're engaging in the war for you know, our own victory in areas of our own personal hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we're engaging in, in war and in, in praying for people and overseeing what God has entrusted into our care. And so here's why, a part, why this is so important. Um, I believe that the reason why many Christians see very little victory in their lives is simply because... They don't, they, they don't even acknowledge the war, first of all. And even if they do, very few Christians, if I were to say, hey, what are the six pieces of the spiritual armor that you and I ought to be utilizing in spiritual warfare, probably most of us would be struggling as to name those, those pieces of armor. And then once you named us, I said, well, what's the, what, is the, um, what, what do those pieces represent? What do they mean? How do you use them in this spiritual war that you're in? And so if we don't know that we're in the battle, if we do know we're in the battle, but we're not utilizing the armor that God has given to us to dress for success, then I can almost assure you, you will continue for the rest of your life dealing with your old hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And after a, 
after a time, people just give up. And they're just like, well, you know, I'm just going to muddle through until either Jesus comes back, come Lord, come quickly, or God takes me to heaven. This is not the life that God called us to live. God called us to walk in the victory of Christ as we leverage what Jesus has done on our behalf in order to do that. Dr. D. James Kennedy developed an outreach program many, many years ago called Evangelism Explosion. He's since gone on to be with the Lord, but uh, through this process, hundreds of thousands of Christians were trained on how to share their faith. And uh, in fact, when I was in seminary, this was one of the requirements, and I was one of the equippers. I I was trained in another church that I attended during that time, so I I was, (laughs) I was, you know... um, Brought on by the evangelism department, say, hey, we've got hundreds of pastors here, never shared their faith before, we need to equip them and train them. So I, I was a part of that. My wife, Marla, went through that process of evangelism explosion, though she did not like it, but she did it uh, anyways. And, and so um, at one point, he, he sent out a survey across the United States, and he, he wanted to know, why is it that most Christians do not share their faith on a regular basis? And he sent out this survey, and really what he expected to hear were the top reasons we usually hear or oftentimes think about, well, I'm afraid, or I don't know what to say, I'm afraid I might say the wrong thing, or I don't even know where to begin, or I, I'm just not around that many uh, you know, non-Christians, and, and therefore that's why I don't share my faith. But much to his surprise, the response that he received that was overwhelmingly the number one response from those around the world was, or around the country was, here's why I don't share my faith on a consistent basis. Because of the way I live. Because of the way I live. And so obviously, what is it that's happening here? Well, if I'm still hung up in my hurts, habits, and hangups, and I can't get victory over that, I'm going to tell people about Jesus, how he's going to give them victory over their hurts, habits, and hang-ups, or how he's going to change their life when my life's not even changing. So we feel guilty about our own personal unrighteousness, and therefore we feel disqualified to share our faith about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is often what halts Christians. And listen, our enemy knows that. We're called to be soldiers for Christ, but he knows that he can, if he can stop us dead in our tracks by focusing on what we're not doing right in our lives and what's going wrong in our lives, and therefore, well, why, can I, why should I ever share about Jesus to anybody else? I haven't even got control of my own life yet. Well, today I want to clarify what it means to stand firm with the breastplate of, plate of righteousness. Now, last week we talked about, you know, girding yourself, putting on the belt of truth, and the belt of truth. Truth is what, what does God say and what does God think about a matter? That's what truth is. What does God say? What does God think? In fact, um, it is the basis of our worldview is truth. Whatever we perceive as truth, where do you find your truth? And your worldview is the beliefs that you have that you're building your life upon. So, for example, when I was not a follower of Jesus, when I was not saved, I believed that when you died, you were just annihilated, right? You just never was going to know that you ever existed. You just, like, snuffed out. And if you were to challenge me, well, where do you, how did you come to that belief? I, the only thing I could have told you was, well, that's just what I believe, that's my truth. That's what I believe. Therefore, that's the way I see eternity. Well, certainly that then um, has huge ramifications on how I view God, how I view myself, how I view life, how I view eternity, heaven, hell, all of those things 
that we are, are f- very familiar with. Life, death, death, suffering, pain, all of those issues. And so we as followers of Jesus, we find truth in God's word. God's word begins to then develop our worldview as to what God says about the matter when it comes to God and pain and suffering and death and afterlife, Jesus and all those other important issues in our lives that guide and direct the decisions that we make day in and day out. And so God uses truth to enable us to do the right thing. Satan's going to use lies in order to get you to do the wrong thing. So there's that battle in your mind as to which way you're going to go. Whose truth are you going to listen to? Whose truth are you going to ultimately follow? So then he comes, the second piece, he says, listen, that belt of truth is something you wear all the time. Whether you use lies or not, I remember I said the gospel applied is what gives you victory. That's what is the answer to your situation, your problem. Now, I can know all the truth in the world about, from God's word, but as James says, if I don't put it into practice, it does me absolutely no good. So I have to apply it. The breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness in our day and time is often used in a very negative way. It refers to somebody who's like condescending or rigid. Well, they just think they're so righteous. You know, they just think their opinions are all that matters about anything. They're just, they just think they're so righteous. Well, let's talk about biblical righteousness, all right? Biblical righteousness means literally to pass inspection, to be approved, uh, to live up to a certain standard. It also has a relational side to it, uh, to be right with somebody. Now, for our purposes today... I want to kind of mesh all the examples and definitions of biblical righteousness into this one statement. It's on your outline. It is to be presentable without shame. To be presentable without shame. It means I pass inspection of uh, of the eyes of someone who is significant to me. Uh, I've been found pleasing in someone's eyes that I once grieved. And so, you know, when we feel guilty about something, we feel guilty about something we have done. When we feel shameful, we feel shameful because we think there's something wrong with me. Right? We, we think something's wrong with us. So, to be righteous in God's eyes is to be presentable to God without shame. Because oftentimes what Satan wants us to focus on are the wrong aspects of our lives, the things we're not doing, the things we're not living up to, so that I stand before God not with confidence, I stand before God shameful, thinking what in the world is wrong with me, and therefore, if I feel shameful, I'm not going to draw in very close fellowship with the Father because I, I, I just feel too shameful, and it's like, oh, no, there's no way I can get... And then Satan starts heaping condemnation on oh, you're a horrible person, and I told you, you shouldn't have done that, and you did it again, and you've confessed that a hundred times to God, he can't forgive you. You're, you're, there's just something desperate... I mean, so wrong with you. God just doesn't even want you anymore. That's the way a lot of God's people live. So um, righteousness is something we deal with every single day. Because we want to be presentable, not ashamed. We want to be presentable to other people. For example, when you started dating, uh, you know, you thought you, you found the one. And so you mustered up and asked the, the girl out, or maybe, you, you know, you asked the guy out. I mean, this day and time, it goes back and forth. My day and time, it just didn't happen that way. But anyways, so what do you do when you get ready for a date? 
you want to be presentable, right? You make yourself presentable, and you think to yourself, you know what? I just talk way too much, and people complain about this all the time, so I know that when I go out on a date this time, I've got to scale back how much I talk because I don't want her to think like I'm all narcissistic and it's just all about me, 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 me. Or maybe you're the type of person who didn't hardly talk at all. And so that makes people feel uncomfortable, and you think to yourself, well, i got to talk. i got to carry the conversation. Because you know when you're out on a date for the first time and there's dead silence, it's like real awkward, right? So maybe you put like, notes on the palm of your hand or up your arm or whatever. You had a cheat sheet. So here's some questions I need to use to, to get the conversation flowing. Why did you do that? Because you wanted to be presentable. You, you wanted to be accepted by that person, so you want to present the best you. You don't want them to think there's something wrong with you. Or uh, maybe there's a physical thing you needed to, to, to uh, cover up. I mean, let's say if you, you, this date, now you got this big old zit right in the middle of your forehead, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I look like a cyclops, and, you know, i got to cover this up. And so use makeup to cover it up. And maybe there's another aspect of your personality. The point being is this. We did everything possible within our our means to make ourselves presentable to the person we're going out on a date with. Because after the first date, let's say he doesn't call you back or she won't respond and you call him and he's not responding back, so what do you do? You begin questioning yourself. What's wrong with me? I, I, there must be something wrong with me. Either he doesn't like, he doesn't like my looks, he, he didn't like my conversation, he didn't like the answers to the questions he was asking, or, or she didn't like this or that. And so then we begin questioning ourselves as to what is wrong with me, which is the essence of shame. I, I, I feel so shameful. There's something wrong with me. I, I was not presentable to him or her. You get the idea? That's the concept behind righteousness. How do I become acceptable apart from shame. And so the struggle to be presentable in the eyes of people that you need to please is really at the center of all of our souls. Like if you try to be presentable or please your parents growing up, and so they had all these expectations, they had all these dreams and desires for you, and let's say you tried to live out all those dreams and desires, you did the best you could, but you fell short, and there, you know, maybe your mom was constantly criticizing you, and even after you got married, she's still criticizing you and finding faults and flaws and all these things. And so what is the feeling, the experience of that child is that I'm not presentable. There's something wrong with me. Or maybe you did live up to all your parents' expectations, but that wasn't really you. You didn't really want, that was not really you. You were just doing it to try to keep them off your back. And so now you're, as an adult, you're thinking, but, but this just isn't who I am why can't I be presentable as God made me to be? And so some people who know their lives are being run by what other people think will often come to the conclusion in their life at some point and say, well, you know what? I just don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm living for self. <laughs> right? So, um, and that sounds all fine and well, but the fact of the matter is it really goes against the grain of our soul and so a couple of things happen. Either you're lying to yourself or you have set your standards so low anybody can, could meet them, right? So um, the truth is we are all desperately afraid of being unpresentable to have our blemishes and to have our faults and failures to come to the surface. Therefore, we tend to cover up. We tend to wear a mask 
beyond COVID, okay? Uh, because you're wearing a mask today, I'm not getting on to you. Uh, but you know, when I went to see the Phantom of the Opera, which is the only opera I like, uh, by the way, but uh, so I went to see the So they have this big number, it's called Masquerade. And so they all have the mask and they're cascading down the stairway, singing this song. And so this is what the, the word means. It means to cover up. So what is really wrong with us? Well, why do we cover up? Why do we try to polish our blemishes? Why cannot we be honest with one another about our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups? Because we want to be presentable without shame. I don't want you thinking there's anything wrong with me. When in fact... Those who are closest to you already know there is. So this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And we've gone back there many times with Adam and Eve. Remember it says that they were naked and unashamed. This is far more than physical nakedness. But they, they were in a perfect context, perfect relationship. Completely presentable before the God who created them. And everything was fine. And God was proud of them. And he, he, he made them out of delight and pleasure and love. And then they listened to the serpent. And they chose to, to you know, rebel against God and to disobey the Lord. And then what all of a sudden happened? They became what? Shameful. Unpresentable. Therefore, they covered themselves up. They hid themselves. They didn't want to see God. Why? Because I'm no longer presentable and I am shameful. Something's gone wrong in my life. So rather than drawing to God, they ran from God. And when you get all wrapped up in shame in your life and your own personal unrighteousness, this is what the evil one does to you in spiritual warfare. He's going he's gonna to speak to your heart and says, you know, you need to run from God. You need to evade God. You, you need to create some distance between you and God. But on the other hand, the Holy Spirit say, no, don't run from God. Run to him. God loves you, and he's provided for you, and he wants to draw into intimacy with you. Do not run away. Draw up in spite of your shame. This is the battle we have. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this battle. Here's what he says. Because our shame goes so deep within us is that we choose to suppress that. We choose to push it down and, and deny it. Because that's what we do with all traumatic material that comes into our lives. We push it down. We try to deny it. We try to suppress it. And so we don't know what to do with it. And when we hold down the truth in such a manner, in this unrighteousness, we cannot admit the depth of, be, of our being unrepresentable to God. And as a result, we try to, we try to please God. Uh, but on the other hand, um, this is a very painful pathway. So rather than pleasing God, here's what humanity does, is that we choose not to please God, to be presentable to God. We choose to focus not on God's eyes, but other people's eyes, and we try to make ourselves presentable and worthy in the eyes of others, and we become people pleasers. And so Paul says that's, that's, that is a downward spiral that's going to take you places you never thought you would go. How do I know that? Well, let's just take a young man in high school and put him in the midst of, un, let's say he's a Christian, put him in a group of unchurched young men. Who do you think is going to change? You think the unchurched young men are going to become like the Christian young man or the Christian young man going to become like the unchurched young man? He, listen, he wants to be presentable. He, wants, he doesn't want to be, you know, 
have a sense of shame. So he, he will accommodate himself to those, the, the largest group, right? Because I want to be accepted. I want to be presentable. I, I don't want anyone to think any, there's anything wrong with me. That's why the Bible says, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. So in the Bible, there are, um, there are three kinds of righteousness that the Bible describes. Here's the first one. It's, it's called self-righteousness. Because we have this sense of being unpresentable and shameful, uh, we look for a way to have a righteousness of our own. In other words, I'm looking for a way to make myself presentable, to make myself acceptable in your eyes. Not just for other people, but now for God himself. Because I don't feel presentable to God. I don't, I don't feel worthy of, of God, and therefore uh, there's, it's created distance. This is what sin does, right? It, it creates distance, and that's the drum that Satan's going to play in your head. Right, you're un, you're unpresentable to God, and 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 you know you, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, and you're all all the things that play over in the tape recorder of your mind. So then you read Romans, something like Romans um, chapter three and verse ten. It says, "There is none righteous, no, not one." You're thinking, "Wow, I I, I got to do something about this. I got to patch myself up. I got to put on some fig leaves. I I, I I've got to I got to make myself over." And so what happens when we try to do this and we try to be acceptable and we try to be someone that we're not, this is why human, human beings are so incredibly insecure. Insecurity runs rampant among humanity. And so we all have eyes. We are trying to live up to a righteousness we are trying to live up to. And so we patch together a way to feel presentable, to please somebody Yet behind those eyes are the eyes of God, and we know that God's eyes are absolutely pure, they're absolutely impartial, they're absolutely honest, and that before those eyes, we are absolutely unacceptable and unpleasable because of our actions, our sin. So this creates a dynamic, right? I have this holy God, and I'm a sinful individual. I feel unpresentable, unacceptable, shameful. We, the list can go on and on. How are we going to bridge this gap? I know. I'll bridge it. I'll, I'll make myself acceptable. See, this is the basis, other than Christianity, this is the basis of all world religions. What, what can I do to make myself acceptable to God? What can I do to make myself righteous in God's eyes so that God can accept me into his presence? Do this, this, and this. When Marla and I were in Italy, it was amazing how many cathedrals we went to and, and churches, and they would be, there would be stairs that would like start here, like cascade way up there. And these are things are made of stone, and the stone was so worn down because people are literally on their knees, crawling up those steps, trying to confess their sin and make penance to God and do whatever they can. So by the time they get to the top, God somehow, some way, in a self way, I have made myself acceptable in your sight, and I've unleashed the shame of my life and the shame of my heart, only to get to the top and find out nothing's changed. And they spend their lives doing this, and it's all cloaked in religion. It's a horrible way to live. And so 
we have to admit that sometimes we don't love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves, and we don't follow the things that God tells us is truthful. So that's self-righteousness. We're trying to make ourselves worthy and, and, and acceptable and presentable in God's eyes. Then there's positional righteousness, which is what the Scripture talks about, what Christianity talks about. And the answer is what? To my self-righteousness, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only Christ and Christ alone who can make me acceptable in God's eyes. Not because I've done penance. Not because I've climbed stairs, stone stairs until my knees are bleeding. And I've gone through a rosary a hundred times as I'm making my way to the top of those stairs. Not because of promises I've made to God. I, there's nothing I can do to make myself presentable in God's eyes. There's nothing I can do personally that will make myself acceptable or remove the stain and the guilt of my shame except the gospel. That's why Jesus is enough. Positional righteousness says, as Paul spells this out beautifully in the book of Romans, is simply this, is that when Jesus died, he died to make you acceptable before God. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that through him we might become what? The righteousness of Christ. And so when I put my faith in Jesus and my trust in Jesus alone, not in my self-righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness, the Bible says that God makes a transfer. He says he takes the sin debt and all that I've ever done wrong, past, present, and future, and he imputed it. He credited it to Jesus' account, which is why he suffered the wrath of God on the cross, the injustice that he never committed, but I committed. And the, then God imputes and credits to my account the righteousness of Christ, so that when I now am in Christ and Christ is in me, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Christ. He sees the righteous record of Jesus. God already sees you seated in the heavenlies with Christ, enveloped in him. So therefore, my righteousness is not the result of my effort. My righteousness is a result of my faith, but it's not just faith in anybody. It is faith in Christ alone. He's the righteous. He, you positionally become righteous in God's eyes. Now, very listen to me very, very carefully. Nothing, nothing you do can change that. All of those verbs in the Greek are in an aorist tense, which means they are past completed actions never to be repeated. When you were placed into Christ, you were secured into him for all eternity. Now, you may go off the rails, and you may do things that are absolutely shameful once again, and Satan's going to come along and say, see, I told you, you're not really a believer. You're not really a follower of Jesus. You don't really love God. Look at what you've done. Look at the way you're acting. Look at the things you're doing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. So what do I do at that point? I pick up the breastplate of righteousness. You're right. You got me. What I'm doing is absolutely wrong. It is absolutely shameful. It is not right. And I have no excuse for it. But I do know this, that if I will confess my sins before my heavenly Father, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness because I've been enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus, and therefore I am still presentable to God and without shame. That is grace, my folks. That is the grace of God being 
poured out into your life through your position in Jesus Christ. There are two kinds of people that oftentimes fill the pews of our churches around our nation. And one is that, you know what? I know about Christianity, and I'm going to try to emulate the Lord, and I'm going to study the Bible, and I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try to do everything that my church tells me to do so that when I die, that when I stand before Jesus, I will present to Jesus everything I have done, and whatever I fall short of in righteousness, I believe that Jesus will pick up the load for me. That is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. You got nothing to offer him. In fact, the Bible says that our best works are like filthy rags. You had better be righteous before you stand before Jesus, because if you're before Jesus in unrighteousness, it's too late. You've missed it. The moment you gave your heart to Christ, the moment you put your faith transfer in Jesus' righteousness rather than your own. That's the moment you became born again. That's the moment that God enveloped you in the righteousness of Christ, credited your account, and therefore you will always be presentable before God. That's grace. That's just pure love and grace. But then there's the practical side, the practical righteousness, which means um, this is what I begin to live out, what I've become. See, it's about becoming and it's about doing. I do not do in order to gain God's acceptance or to erase my sin in some way or to, to you know, right the wrong that is in me. I do out of response of my love for God because of what he's doing within me. And he's doing within me through Christ. It's the gospel applied to my life that God has done these things so that I can now begin to live out the truth that God has put in my belt, so to speak. And people always come along and say, well, but that just sounds a little, little leery because what if you just keep sinning again and again and again and again and, and, and you really don't have any, you know, there's no sorrow about it. You just like, because here, here's, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, if, if, you, if you have grace like that, people are just going to do whatever they want from here on out. And, and because they, well, why not? Why would I just take the grace and then just live the wherever I want? Because I'm, if I'm enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus, I know that I'm good and I, I'm without shame and I'm going to enter into his presence. So I'm just going to live however I want. No, the Bible would say that's an indication you never really trusted Jesus. You, you just wanted fire insurance. There's a difference. See, if, if, if Jesus has changed my heart, it's not that I become perfect overnight. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. When I look at my life now, as opposed to what my life was like when I was saved, man, there's so much that has changed. It's not that there's a lot that needs to be changed, you know, in the future. My wife says amen. But a lot has, I mean, I'm light years from what I used to be. My thoughts and, my, and the things that I did and the way that I spoke and the actions that, I, that were part of my life. And so you're making progress, and it's the Holy Spirit who is enabling you to make that progress in your personal uh, righteousness. And so you're living that out. And that's exactly what um, the Apostle Paul uh, is going to say in chapter 5, he says, listen, you, you've been made new in Christ, and therefore now let's, let's put that into practice. Let's, let's not walk in the old ways of life anymore. Let's, let's move into the, to the new life and imitate Christ with your life. 
So let me just narrow this down to three questions that you need to ask yourself. When we think in terms of self-righteousness, positional righteousness, or Christ's righteousness that God accredits to your account through that relationship with Jesus, and then practical righteousness. In other words, how do I take this practical truth and ingrain it in my thought processes and in my emotional bank so that when the evil one comes against me in my thought processes, in my emotions, I know how to respond to that. And I'll give you some examples in the third question I'm going to ask you. So the first question you need to ask yourself, and especially those of you here online, am I a soldier of the cross? Am I truly a soldier of the cross? When people say... Yeah, man, I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I, I never used to ask this, but I, do, I, I ask it all the time now. What Jesus are you believing in? You know, the Jesus of Mormons, the Jesus of the Jehovah Witness, the Jesus, uh, I can just start rattling off one religion after another. You always want to say, what do they teach about Christ? Because Paul says if they give you a gospel, even if they said they received it from an angel, if they give you a gospel that we have not given you, let them be condemned. And there's a lot of false gospels out there that's called what Paul calls the doctrines of demons. Why would he not do that? Because if they can get you putting your hope and faith and trust in a false gospel, he knows that when you reach the end of this life, you ain't going to make it. And so that's why we, the soldiers of the cross, we ought to be on the front lines fighting for truth. We ought to be on the front lines fighting for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you come to Christ, the gospel, and it's, it's more, you know, we use the word believe. We oftentimes say to people, well, just ask Jesus in your heart. Just believe. Well, what do you mean by believe? What does it mean just to believe? Is, do I just believe that, you know, Jesus existed? Do I just believe that he died? Do I, I mean, is, is that all? I, I just believe those things? No, it's more. When the Bible uses the word belief, it goes deeper than just a mental assent, something that, you know, a... Um, uh, a thought or an idea or a concept that I'm, I'm believing to be truthful or not, it means to literally put the full weight of your trust, that you absolutely transfer your trust away from your own bucket of self-righteousness and you put it all, all of it, every bit of it, into the bucket of Christ's righteousness. That's what it means to be saved. It's not just, oh, I raised my hand one day, or I filled out a card in church, or I got baptized. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's trust. It's, it's a moment. Jesus says this moment of salvation is like spiritual birth. You know, when, when, you're, when you have a physical birth, I don't know about ladies, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the moment that child dropped out of your, your body, you're like, oh, thank God that's over with. Uh, but it happened, right? It was a moment. It was a time, and it was like life transforming to you. When that, that baby was laid on your chest, and for the first time, you heard it cry, and you, be, you were able to hold it. And so that's the way it transfer. You may not remember all the details of your salvation experience, but I am telling you, you, you ought to remember that there was a moment in time in which you made that, that distinct transfer of trust. Ask yourself, am I a soldier of the cross? Am I truly a soldier of the cross? Or am I believing in my own righteousness? You know, the Apostle Paul, this was his whole deal. 
You read Philippians chapter 3. I mean, Paul's like, he hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. He's out there persecuting the church. He has a Damascus Road experience. And Paul said, up to this point, I was trusting in my own self-righteousness. I was trusting in the fact that I was a Pharisee among Pharisees, and I was the tribe of Hebrew. And, a, and I mean, he all went on down the line with his pedigree. And then all of a sudden, he says, man, when I met Jesus, all of a sudden, that was shoved aside. He says, man, that was like dung to me. Uh, I'll, I'll save you the details of that. But he said, now I have a new righteousness, but my righteousness is not in what I can do and my self-effort and where I came from and my behaviors. My righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone. And so faith is believing that certain things are true, but the simple believing in the truthfulness of things is not the same as saving faith. That does not lead to transformation of life. It involves entering into the benefit of these things through a righteousness of Christ. And so when you really get saved, you really come quickly to the realization, I ain't got nothing to boast about. Not a thing. Because all that I am, all that I have, all that I ever will be is because of Jesus. He's enough. Number two, am I wearing the breastplate of righteousness? Are you wearing that breastplate of righteousness? Are you standing firm? Notice what he says. He says, stand firm in this. You know, um, the book of James says that, you know, you, you delight yourself in the Lord. Resist the devil. Stand firm, and he will, he will flee from you. This isn't about taking a club and going after the devil, right? Like, I'm going to club him to death or whatever, okay, because he's a spiritual being. Uh, <laughs> It's about standing firm. It's about standing in who you have become in Christ. It's about standing firm in who you are in the eyes of God. And so we rest in the righteousness of Jesus. The Spirit of God conforms us then to the image of Christ, and therefore he, he's making us more righteous in and of ourselves. It's a transformation process, right? But remember this, it is a lifelong process. You don't get saved today and like, man, you're just like ultimate righteous living the next day, okay? When I got saved, I had a filthy mouth. When I got up the next day, I still had a filthy mouth. When I got saved, I had a drug problem. When I got up the next day or next week, months, I still had a drug problem, all right? So, but, but, but if you keep walking, if you keep standing firm, if you keep walking in the righteousness of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God has the power to begin to transform your life. As you transform your thought processes, because the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate was kind of like this long. It covered the entire torso. It covered your heart and your bowels because in the Greek mindset, your heart was the seat of your mind. Your bowels, the seat of your emotions. Now, I know that we, you know, I love you with all my heart because we see that as the seat of the emotions. And the reason is because of Hallmark, because you, you can't give somebody a Hallmark card that says, I love you with all my bowels. This doesn't sound right, Okay. It's not going to be taken well, uh, but this, this is the way they saw it. And so God, the breastplate of righteousness is to, to protect your mind and your emotions. Because every single day of our lives, we make emotionally driven decisions. And when you're making an emotionally driven decision, you need to ask yourself three very pointed questions. You need to pause and ask yourself, does this option violate God's truth, God's law in some way? 
does what I'm, is what I'm about to do violate the, a principle in God's word anyway? And in light of the story I want to tell, what is the wise thing for me to do? You know, David found this out. You remember when he was in the cave and Saul was in there relieving himself and, and his, David's men come up to them and said, David, 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 it's God's will, man. God has dropped Saul right into your lap. He's in a very vulnerable position. It's, it's your opportunity to go and kill him. And David said what? I will not violate God's law. It's God who put him on the throne, and it's God who's going to have to take him off. I will not do that. Can you imagine the story David would have to tell his grandson later on? Well, you know, Saul was in the cave, and he had to go potty, and I just whacked his head off. It's a good story. No, he wanted to trust in God and let God write the story that he wanted to tell years later. So here's what Paul says. Look in Ephesians 4.24 as we we think about this um, Putting on the breast, wearing the breastplate, right? He says, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, For once you were once in darkness, but now you are in light, in the light of the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all the goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases him. Verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He's saying, listen, you are are positionally righteous. You are presentable to God and you you can live without shame. But now let's take what God is doing on the inside of you and let's start living this out in real practical everyday ways. Taking God's truth and applying it to our our individual lives. It's Jesus and his righteousness, which is the protection against the onslaughts of the evil one to get us to look at ourselves rather than Christ. Because when I look at myself, I'm like you. I'd see some, I, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look at Jesus, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. And so when I'm struck with decisions especially emotionally charged decisions. I want to look to Jesus. I want to saturate my my mind and heart in God's truth. I want to allow the Holy Spirit the opportunity to download into me the message of God for that particular moment and opportunity. Now, if this is an area of temptation, you know that once you allow your mind and your emotions to lock into something, you can try to fight with your will all you want, but it ain't going to work. So this is where you have to be prepared ahead of time with God's truth, the belt of truth, and then you download that into your mind and your spirit, into your your, um, soul, into your emotions, and you choose. You choose against what you might be feeling, everything inside of your feelings. You're like, oh, but I want, oh, but I want, oh, but you have to step back and rationalize. But what are the consequences? What is the outcome of this? What is this? Is this a violation of God's truth? Is this a violation of the principle of God's? The story I want to tell somewhere down the road, is this really the story that I want to tell? And, and make yourself hesitate just for a moment, if nothing else. Here's the third one. Am I guarding my heart from the schemes of the devil? So as you personally applicate this to your life, there's area of discontent. Remember, Satan's always going to bait us with a lie that the only thing was the 
only the things that you don't possess will ultimately satisfy you. Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? He said, God said, you can, have, God said you, can have, you can eat from any tree in the garden. There's thousands of them. But this one tree. So what did Satan do? He got them to focus on the one tree. Well, if you, you eat of that tree, oh, you're going to be like God, and, and God's holding out on you, and this will bring satisfaction in your life. This will bring fulfillment in your life. And remember I said last week, we are basically hedonistically driven for pleasure and, and fullness in life. And so Satan always going to come at us and try to create within us this discontentment uh, in our spirits so that we will always look for uh, the next thing that's going to do it for us, right? It's the next mate. It's the next house, the next job, the next amount of money, the next promotion, the next this, that, and the other. Man, that'll do it. That'll, that'll bring ultimate contentment in your life. And we just keep t- chasing that proverbial rabbit around the, around the ring. And we never find what we're looking for. Until you find it in Christ. What about pride? Pride says you're in control of your own destiny. You have to take care of yourself. No, you don't take care of yourself. Nobody else is going to take care of you. And so the connection, uh, pride is I, I, I do it myself. Right? Kids always get to this point in their life early on. And I do myself. I do myself. And so here's what, we, here's what we do with pride is that I must make myself presentable to God. I do myself. I get rid of my shame. I get rid of everything that's wrong with me. I, I do it. I do it. And the Bible says that God has given the body of Christ the unique capacity to help one another do this, not on our own. If you have a hurt habit or hang up that you find that you're stuck in and you've been stuck in for a long time, if you think you're going to get unstuck by yourself, you're listening to the lie of the enemy. You need help. Get it. Bitterness. We talked about this in the message. I'm just going to mention it. I'm not going to dive into that. But, you know, we, he wants us to remain unpresentable and rooted in resentment and hang on to the hurt and rehearse it and suppress it and rehearse it all over and over again and just live your life shifting blame and no, taking responsibility for anything and just blaming everyone and just being bitter the rest of your life. That's not a way to live. The last one I really want to talk about and just briefly is fear. Uh, one last passage I want you to look at, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, because here Paul puts another little spin on this, uh, on this breastplate uh, of righteousness. He says this, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlling, self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope, the hope of salvation as a helmet. Faith, hope, and love. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Where have I Perhaps 1 Corinthians 13. What is he saying? Love is a very powerful thing. The moment, the moment God conceived you in his mind, he already loved you. Every single one of you who are parents and grandparents, you know the moment you lock your eyes on your children and grandchildren, nobody had to convince you to love them. It was automatic and strong. So when you look at these three things, faith, hope, and love, what does faith do? Faith means that my past has been dealt with. God has removed my shame. He's removed my guilt. I've been made presentable to 
before him because of the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to my account, and hope takes care of my future. The Bible is full of writings and teachings and truth about the future and how God has secured our future for us. And so love is for what? Love is for the here and now. Love is a very powerful thing. People who are more honest about where they are and what they're feeling do so when they feel loved, when they feel secure. They'll open up in much greater ways. If I come into your presence and I don't know if I can trust you, I don't know if you love me or not, and I don't even know if you really care about me, I'm not going to share much with you. But if I know that you love me and you want the best for me and you would do anything in your power to help me navigate through this area of my life, that love will cause me to spill my guts. That's what we need in the church today. Because it's the only way we're going to heal ourselves up. It's the breastplate of righteousness So remember this, being positionally righteous in Christ means I am always, always presentable to God. If you don't wear the breastplate, you're always going to feel condemned. You're always going to feel less than. You're always going to feel unacceptable. But when you take up the breastplate and you just think, this is what God's done for me in Christ, and you take that truth and you rest Everything that you are, all that you could ever become in that truth, you know that you're presentable to God. And God has not only removed your guilt, he has removed your shame. He knows you're broken. The process of sanctification, which is really what this is about, is about healing you where you're broken. It's a lifelong process. So, Father, we thank you that you have um, given to us truth that can combat the lies of the enemy about us. Father, we acknowledge before you this morning there is absolutely nothing we can do to make ourselves presentable to you, but that Jesus has already done it for us. This is such the beautiful message of the gospel of Christ. God, I, I pray that we will not muddy the waters of the gospel that we will not allow the lies of the enemy to distort the gospel one iota. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that makes us presentable before a holy God. And once he has clothed us in that righteousness, (laughs) the evil one cannot change that position. We are eternally secure in Christ. Eternally secure. So, Father, thank you that even though you know every fault, every flaw, every blemish of our lives, even in the here and now, your love for us has never wavered one iota. So we thank you, the Holy Spirit, that you draw us to the Father. In spite of what we do, in spite of what we think, in spite of what we say, because we know that there is hope, there is cleansing, there is restoration, there is refreshment in the presence of our Creator, our Heavenly Father. So we thank you for the beautiful plan of the gospel. We thank you, O God, that Jesus is enough. In his name we pray.